And then if you've got a few fingers that you can stick, or maybe you want to grab some envelopes in the pew, find your place in Luke chapter 19, and then uh, maybe Matthew 21. I'm not sure if we'll actually, uh, if I'll direct you there to read some of those verses, but we're definitely going to read this morning from John chapter 12 and Luke 19. Uh, in the sports and entertainment world, the entrance oftentimes is nearly as important as the event itself. So whether it's a, a sporting event or concert or wherever it is, the, the entrance is a big deal. I think we all this morning would agree that we love a good entrance. We love a good entrance song or a walkout song. If you go to the, see the flying squirrels, every batter that comes to the plate will have their own walkout song that plays. It's indicative of who they are and their uh, likes and dislikes. And so baseball players are like professional wrestlers. They have their own walkout music to make their appearance. Football teams, if you go to a football game, have their own unique uh, walkout where they come and, and they will run through crowds of cheerleaders or they'll have the band playing or lots of smoke or all of that combined in to one entrance. And then if you're an NBA fan, LeBron James has his own uh, chalk toss. You see the picture there on the screen. That's he, every time LeBron James plays, he goes over to the, to the table and he gets this powdered chalk. He puts it in his hands and he throws it up in the air as his entrance into the game. I've yet to figure out why he does it, but fans flock to it. It's his way to promote himself. It's his way to promote his brand. And so celebrities and athletes use this grand entrance as a way to promote their brand. We see in the Bible that at least on one occasion, Jesus also had his own grand entrance. Now, there was no theme song, there's no uh, theatrical lighting, there's no uh, smoke machines, but there was a crowd of people who were cheering and who were excited to see him. And Jesus' entrance was very different than what we would see today. It was very, very different than any entrance that those who witnessed him there in Jerusalem and in Bethany. It's very different than anything they would have seen in the Colosseum or their own sporting events. It's different from what we would see in our celebrities today in our world. Jesus didn't promote himself. He wasn't there to promote his brand or promote who he was. He didn't work to draw attention to himself. But also we're going to see in this passage that he didn't refuse the praise that was lauded upon him either. His entrance was very different. Jesus here makes a grand entrance into Jerusalem just a few days ahead of being arrested, put on trial, and crucified. So if you've got your place there in John chapter 12, I want us to read this morning, verses 12 through 19 on this Palm Sunday. John tells us, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And that's what we want is the world to chase 
after Jesus. We find here in this passage the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ as he comes into Jerusalem. And this triumphal entry into Jerusalem comes on the heels of a great miracle that Jesus performed there in the village called Bethany. In John chapter 11, we read that Lazarus, this good friend of Jesus, had died. And the Lord had been in Jerusalem, but then left and went to uh, went across the Jordan River to where John the Baptist had been baptizing. Based on John's timeline, we see that word of Lazarus' sickness was sent to Jesus while he was away, when he was across the Jordan River. And then Jesus stayed two more days after learning that Lazarus was sick. And then he finally left to go to Bethany. And so by the time Jesus and his disciples arrived there in Bethany, Lazarus had been dead for four days. He'd been placed in the tomb. Mary and Martha were distraught. You've read these these passages. You've read this story. You know what is taking place here. Mary and Martha are are weeping because their brother has died, but also they're weeping and distraught because Jesus, the friend of Lazarus, Jesus, their friend, who they had spent many a day with, many an evening with, many a meal with, delayed in coming. They knew Jesus could heal Lazarus. They knew Jesus could prevent him from dying, and yet Jesus delayed. And so they're heavy Their hearts were heavy. The Lord, the Bible tells us, was moved with compassion for these two sisters that he loved. And so he proclaimed to them that he was the resurrection and the life, chapter 11, verse 25 tells us. And then he commanded that the stone over Lazarus' tomb to be removed. And Jesus stood there before this tomb and he called out to Lazarus. And Lazarus got up and walked out of the tomb. That would have been a glorious sight. I don't know about you, but I've... I've stood over many a grave at a funeral. Even this morning we sat on the edge of a cemetery and I've yet to see someone stand up out of the grave. That would have been a sight to see. So the news of a man being resurrected from the dead after four days in the tomb began to spread like wildfire throughout Bethany and even into Jerusalem. This news and this, uh, this talk about Jesus and this supposed miracle that had taken place began to incite the chief priests and the Pharisees to begin to really plot out how they could kill Jesus and rid Israel from this nuisance in their mind, to get rid of his teaching and his influence. And so as a result, Jesus began to retreat a short way, a short time away in Ephraim to the north. And so as we move here to chapter 12, we see that chapter 12 begins with Jesus returning to Bethany. It's six days before the Passover as Jesus comes back to Bethany. Mary and Martha threw a big party for Jesus. They hadn't had an opportunity to to celebrate Lazarus' resurrection. And so Jesus had walked away real quick and and retreated to Ephraim. So now that Jesus is back, six days prior to to the Passover, they're in Bethany. Mary and Martha are going to throw this big party. And as they're celebrating, news of the return of Jesus began to spread throughout Bethany and into Jerusalem. And so, as we see here in verse 9 that we read, a large crowd of people came to Bethany to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. So the time for the Lord's passion in this week was now at hand. And he told his disciples that he would suffer and he would die in Jerusalem. And the following day, apparently on Monday, this large crowd met Jesus on the road as he entered Jerusalem. And they began to wave palm branches and cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. We see here in this passage the grand entrance of our Lord Jesus. As he entered the city, every single person who celebrated his entrance had his or own set of expectations. Today we sit here with our own set of expectations 
upon Jesus. They wondered what Jesus should be. They wondered about what Jesus should do. But Jesus Christ, however, did not come to meet our greatest expectations. Jesus came to meet our greatest needs. And this morning, as you sit here, I want you to encourage you to just think through that. Jesus didn't come to meet my expectations. Jesus came to meet my deepest needs. Because we have these expectations, but we often don't understand what our deepest need is. The deepest need you have in your life this morning is to have your sins forgiven and to become a, a child of God, to enter a relationship with the God who created you for himself. That is the deepest need in all of our hearts. So in this Palm Sunday, I want us to take a look at this grand entrance, and I want us to ask three questions as we try to understand what Jesus is doing as he enters Jerusalem. First question I want us to ask is this, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Perhaps there are as many answers to that question as there are people in the world. I mean, it seems like a lot of people have their own answer as to who Jesus is. In fact, Jesus asked a very similar question of his disciples one day. Matthew 16, we see this. Jesus was sitting there with his disciples, and he said, Who do the people say that I am? And those disciples began to respond. Well, some say that you are Elijah. Some say that you are John the Baptist. Some think that you are Jeremiah, or perhaps you're one of the other prophets of old. There's all kinds of perceptions about who Jesus is. And then Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, who do you say that I am? And then Peter stood up and made that grand profession of faith, that grand confession of faith. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus, in response to Peter, informed him that the truth that he was declaring wasn't something he had learned from another human teacher. It was something that God the Father had spoken into his own heart. Because Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. He's not just another good man. He's not just another good teacher. He's not some prophet of old. He's not some uh, nice guy out there and a benevolent guy. No, he is the very God of very God. That's who Jesus is. So the Bible in this grand entrance account tells us several things about who Jesus is. Let me give them to you four things real quickly. He is, first of all, the Lord. Jesus is the Lord, over there in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus instructs two of his disciples, we see in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where they record this, this, uh, this, this part of the story where Jesus instructed two of his disciples to go and to find this young donkey colt, and if they were asked about it, he says, just tell them that the Lord has need of it. That's what we see here in Matthew 21, verse 3. The Lord needs them. He needs these two donkeys. And so we learn there in these gospels that, that Jesus is the Lord, that's what Jesus used of himself, the title he used of himself. And this title speaks of power, it, it speaks of authority. The connotation is of a master who is in charge of his estate, who owns and controls his estate. It's interesting as we look in Mark's gospel that when the disciples were questioned about them taking this young donkey colt and its mother, that when they explained that the Lord has need of it, those people who were questioning them immediately released them. They backed off and didn't pursue it anymore. Why? Because the Lord is the master. These were his donkeys. These were his colts. So they submitted without resistance. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the Lord. The Bible tells us that he holds all power. He holds all authority. He alone is the master. He is not just a lowercase Lord. He is an uppercase Lord. And Revelation 19.16 tells us that he is not only Lord, he is Lord of lords. Not only is the Lord, he is also the king. 
We see in the Bible he is the king of the Jews. In Matthew 21, verse 5, we see the, 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 the reference to Zechariah 9. There in verse 5 it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. So both Matthew and John quote from this messianic passage from Zechariah chapter 9. And according to the gospel writers, Jesus is the rightful, Jesus is the prophetic, and Jesus is the royal king of the Jews. He is the one who is to come in the line of King David. He is the fulfillment of the promise God made to King David. There in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 16 where God told David that there will be no end to your kingdom. There will be no end to your throne. He's the title of the king of the Jews then that was placed upon Jesus' cross as he hung there on Golgotha that says that he is the king of the Jews. That was a rightful title. Who is Jesus? He is Lord. He is king. The Bible tells us he is the king of the Jews. But he's not just the king of the Jews. He's also the king of the Gentiles. Look here in verse 20 of John chapter 12. The Bible says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The Greeks John is speaking of here could have come from any part of the Greek-speaking world. They were Gentiles, and most likely Gentiles who feared God. Now we know as we read Scripture that there were Gentiles who were God-fearers. There were Gentiles who believed in the God of Israel, Yahweh. Some were proselytes. Others merely attached themselves to the Jewish way of life and synagogue worship. Cornelius of Caesarea and the centurion from Capernaum are two men that would fit this category. Greek men, Gentile men who feared God and sought out God's face. And so these Greeks here in John 12 who came to Jesus in Jerusalem desired to know more about who he was and what he was teaching. And Jesus welcomed these Gentiles to himself. After all, he was their king. See, Jesus is the king of every Gentile just as he is the king of every Jew. There's coming a day when all peoples will bow before him as their king and confess with their mouths that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul very explicitly tells us that in Philippians Philippians chapter 2. There is coming a day when every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow before Jesus. Why? Because he's not just the king of Israel. He is the king of the world. He created it for himself. Every people. The reason we do missions, the reason we, we, we promote Annie Armstrong and promote church planning at all places in North America, the reason we send teams to India and Barcelona and Sweden and every other corner of the world is because Jesus is worthy of worship. He is the king of Gentiles. So he's Lord, he's king. Thirdly, he is worthy of worship. Look in Luke chapter 19. Look at verse 39. It says here, Luke says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. These are the people who are proclaiming Jesus and glorifying Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. And then verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What's happening here in this passage, what's happening is this. As Jesus was entering the city and being hailed as the king by the crowd, there were some Pharisees there who were hearing this, and they began to caution Jesus and call him to, to, to tell his people, to tell this crowd, to rebuke this crowd, to no longer say these things. And Jesus' response was this. If they don't worship me, the stones on the side of the road will. 
Why? Because I'm worthy of all worship. What qualifies Jesus to be worthy of our worship? Let me give you three quick things. This is not exhaustive at all, but these are the bare bones, that, the bare bone things that qualify Jesus to be worthy of our worship this morning. The reason we sing songs is not because we just like music. We sing songs to Jesus because he's worthy of our worship. So what qualifies him? Number one, what qualifies him is the fact that Jesus is God. John chapter 1 verse 1 we learn that in the beginning was God and the in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now what is the word there in that verse? John is telling us that the word that he speaks of the logos there is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is God. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 that through him and by him and for him were all things made that were made. Jesus is God. He's the one who created all things. And so Jesus is God. Secondly, Jesus is the creator, as I just alluded to there in Colossians chapter 1. We go to John chapter 1 verse 3, and John tells us that, that through the word, everything was created that was created. Jesus is worthy of our worship because he's God, and as God, he is the creator of all that there is. You go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and as God the Father is creating the universe for those six days, he's creating it through the medium of the Lord Jesus Christ being the word spoken. You see, the Bible over and over again says, and God spoke, and this was created. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be water and there's water let there be an expanse between the heavens and the earth and that took place how's that taking place it's because jesus is the one creating being the vehicle through which the father is creating so he is god he is the creator and thirdly he is the savior john chapter 12 Verse 47, Jesus says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He said a very similar thing in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Why is he worthy of worship? Because he's God, he's creator, and he's also the one redeeming, saving our sinful lives. So we sing to him this morning. We worship him this morning because we have a song in our heart, because we have a salvation to experience. Amen? Fourthly, he is the peacemaker. He is the peacemaker. If you've got your Bible back there or your finger there stuck in Luke chapter 19, and I told you we're going to go back and forth quite a bit. It's one of the only stories that's included in all four Gospels. It's a really important story. Not to say that others aren't, but this is something that every single Gospel writer is speaking of and teaching us of. Verse 38 of Luke 19. The crowd was saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven. See, through Jesus, peace is made in heaven. Well, what kind of peace? I thought heaven was always peaceful. I thought the angels just sat around on clouds and, and, and strummed their, their hearts. I thought that was what heaven was all about. What is the gospel writers talking about here? What are these people declaring here? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says this, And you, speaking to you and I today, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
And so if Jesus is the one who brings peace in heaven, and Paul here is telling us in these two passages that there was once hostility between us and God because of our sin, what is going on here in our salvation? Well, the Bible tells us that each person's sin has separated and put him or her at odds with God. In other words, in your sin, you are at war with God. You say, I'm not at war with God. I'm a peaceful person. I love other people. Your sin is at war with God, the Bible says. It's as much at war with God as light is at war with darkness. They have no fellowship. I got up real early this morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, the house was pitch black. I walked in, I, you know, I'm just kind of stumbling around. I got sleep in my eyes, trying to find the bathroom. And then secondly, I'm trying to find the coffee pot, amen? <laughs> stumbling around, and all of a sudden you flip that light on, and it's, you know, it's like you just stood in a, in a, it's like you got a million candlewatt power beam in my face Light cannot have fellowship with darkness. Sin cannot have fellowship with holiness. We in our sin are at war with God. You are in rebellion against God, and your sin condemns you to death, the Bible teaches. And so there's nothing you can do to redeem yourself. Sinfulness cannot redeem sinfulness. Something has to come in on the outside and change us from the inside out. And so it's here that Jesus, through his death, it's Jesus through his burial, it's Jesus through his resurrection that steps in as your peacemaker between you and God the Father. His death on the cross as that perfect sacrifice for sin satisfied the justice of God. We sang about it just a minute ago that the wrath of God has been stayed upon our life. The wrath of God has been pushed back upon our life because of what Jesus has done for us. He's a peacemaker. So now, God the Father accepts the death of God the Son in our place. And Jesus has made peace in heaven for you. That's who Jesus is. And so who is this crowd that we see here in these four passages in these Gospels? Who is this crowd? Well, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, he did so not as just another common man like at other times. Jesus entered the city of the king... Jerusalem was the city of the king. It was the city of David. And he enters the city of the king as the coming king. And the large crowd that had followed Jesus from Bethany now merges with the crowd coming out of Jerusalem. And they all waved the palm branches. They threw them before Jesus and the disciples as they entered. And A.T. Robertson, that great Greek scholar, tells us and points out that to carry palms was a mark of triumphant homage to a victor or to a king. This was a practice that had begun nearly 200 years prior to this as the Maccabees there, Simon the Maccabee, drove the Syrian forces out of Jerusalem in 141 BC, and they began to herald him and others like him who would bring victory to the city of Jerusalem. And as Jesus enters this city, he has been heralded as the Savior of God's people. And so they honored him with music and the waving of these palm branches. The people there in the crowd were either ones who had witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus or ones who had heard the report of this resurrection. Either way, they knew Jesus was special. They knew that there was something different about the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were convinced that he was not just an ordinary man. They were convinced he wasn't just an ordinary leader. Many of those in the crowd believed Jesus to be the Messiah, that a long-awaited Savior of God's people, the one who would come in the lineage of David, who would rescue them from Roman oppression. And however, just like today in this crowd, sitting here this morning, there were three different types of people in the crowd before Jesus. So let me share these with you real quick. First of all, we see in this crowd genuine disciples. 
We see genuine disciples in this crowd. Luke 19, verse 37, it tells us here, And as he was drawing near, as Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And so Luke tells us here that Jesus' disciples rejoiced and praised God for his mighty works. His disciples were in the crowd. What is a disciple? A disciple is one who follows a master, follows another. And so the disciples here were those who followed Jesus. It's one who learns from and lives for the master. These men and women believed Jesus to be their Messiah and their King and their Lord. And so they had placed their faith in who Jesus is and who Jesus was. They developed a personal relationship with him. There were genuine followers, genuine disciples in this crowd. Secondly, we see that there were nothing more than casual observers also in the crowd. Going back to John chapter 12, we see these casual observers. Uh, it says there in verse 12, The next day this large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so these people had come to the city for the Passover. They'd arrived there early. They'd heard all about Lazarus being raised from the dead. They'd heard that Jesus had come back to Bethany and was headed their way. And they're excited about this. And so they began to move toward Jesus. I need to work on my gut a little bit. Look at verse 17, we see this further played out. The crowd that had been with him when he, verse 17, when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. And then the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. And so you see these two things at play. John here is referencing two different groups in this crowd. There were those who had witnessed the rising of Lazarus, and then there was those who had come from the feast who were in Jerusalem. The former had, stopped, had not stopped talking about what they'd seen. They'd not stopped talking about this dead man who was now alive and walking and living and eating and breathing and, and normal. Those, those in Jerusalem wanted to see this sight. They wanted to see Jesus perform another miracle. So they were spectators. They were nothing more than casual followers of Jesus, casual observers of Jesus. They kept up with the news of Jesus in the headlines. They were following the news and the tweets about Jesus. They followed him on social media. They wanted to hear all the neat things about Jesus, but they were nothing more than casual observers. There's a third group in this, in this crowd. There were those who were religion followers. Look down there at verse 39. Of Luke chapter 19. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. These Pharisees who were in the crowd were blinded by their religion. They believed that God was pleased by their religious practices. They believed that keeping the law could satisfy and would satisfy God's judgment against sin. They believed that because of their religiosity, they were good enough in the eyes of God. That's why they were standing against Jesus and his gospel. Today, just like in that crowd then, there are three types of people present in every church service. In fact, there are many here who are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. There are people here this morning who have acknowledged their sinfulness. They have confessed that sin to Jesus. They've repented of that sin. They've placed their faith in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. They are genuine followers of Jesus. Today, some of you sitting here, you have come to that point in your life where you are in a personal relationship with Jesus. This thing that we do on Sundays and Wednesdays and every other day of our lives, it is not just a religion. It's not just something we do in our schedule. It is a way of life for us. Why? Because Jesus has become our life. 
genuine followers of Jesus are in the crowd. There are others here who are merely casual followers of Jesus, a casual observer. They may or may not believe Jesus is Lord and Savior, but they do believe he was a good man and an important teacher. They believe he's someone from which to learn. See, the casual follower, that casual observer, uh, has never placed his or her faith in Jesus. They never repented of their sin. They may want to do so at some point, but for now, they would prefer to follow at a distance. There's a lot of people that follow Jesus at a distance. See, when Jesus was crucified and he was placed upon the cross, only those who really had a personal relationship with him stuck by him. And even those wavered just a little bit. There are so many people in the church today that are nothing more than a casual observer. Long ago, I heard a quote from Billy Graham where he used to say that he believed that in the church of Jesus Christ in America, 80% of the people who sit in the pews on Sundays are lost. They're casual observers. This morning, if you're a casual observer, if you're just kind of hanging around this Christian thing, if you're just kind of hanging and doing your church thing, I want to encourage you to not be a casual observer anymore. Be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. Come to the place in your life where you repent of your sin, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you receive him as Lord and Savior. That's what you need this morning. That's the greatest need in your life. There's a third group, obviously, that we've talked about in this crowd, and there's a third group here this morning. And that is, there are some who are religion followers today. Like the Pharisees who put their faith in their ability to keep the law, religion followers in the church today place their faith in the sinner's prayer that they prayed as a kid. The religion followers are putting their faith in that baptism that they vaguely remember at some point in their life. Perhaps as a teenager, they were baptized. They place their faith in church membership. They place their faith in the fact that, that grandma was a God-fearing person or grandpa was a preacher back in the day. They place their faith in religion and religiosity. But this morning, if they were to die, if Jesus was to come back, they would split hell wide open. Why? Because it's nothing more than religion they're nothing more than a casual observer. You follow a list of rules. You follow a list of do's and don'ts. You check it off your list. Church is nothing more than a, that you may actually love church, but it's nothing more than just religion for you. You're trying to earn your way to heaven. I played that game for five years of my life, most miserable five years of my entire life of nearly 40 years. Never really knowing if you're settled with the Lord. Never really knowing and understanding if God really loves you. Never understanding if your good outweighs your bad. Let me just tell you, it never outweighs the good. Your bad always outweighs your good because you can't be good enough. Jesus must impute his goodness, his righteousness into our lives. So then the balance can tip and be accepted in the eyes of the Father. And so these casual observers and these religion followers miss the point of Jesus' grand entrance. They remain lost and separated in their sin. But the genuine disciples understood Jesus. They understood his gospel. And they experienced salvation and new life. So let me give you the last question this morning. With all that said, how shall we receive this king? How shall we receive this king? The crowd shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They receive, many of them receive the King. This term, Hosanna, this title, Hosanna, 
The transliteration it, it literally means save now. They're calling upon Jesus to bring salvation to them. And so it became a term of acclamation and praise. Both Hosanna and the statement that follows are drawn from Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26. The, the phrase that, that's spoken there that speaks of Jesus being the king of Israel isn't a quote from that psalm. It, it's something else. And so the Midrash, this rabbinic teaching, understood this portion of the psalm to be messianic. In other words, as they are seeing Jesus come into Jerusalem, they see him as the king of salvation. They see him as one who would bring salvation to them. And so they received him. These genuine followers received him as such. And then those Greeks who wished to see Jesus in John 12 also received Jesus as their king on his own terms, not on their own. So how do we receive this king? Two things. First of all, we receive this king in repentance. We receive the king in repentance. John 12, verse 35. Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Jesus here tells us that those who would follow him must turn from the darkness of their sin to the light of his salvation. It speaks of repentance here. What is repentance? Repentance means I was living for sin and self. I was headed this direction on my way to a sinner's hell, to a devil's hell, under the wrath and the judgment of God. But I realized in the gospel my sinfulness, my need for salvation. So I repented and I turned and went the opposite way. No longer living for sin and self. Now I'm living for the Savior. Now I'm living for Jesus in my life. We receive the king in repentance as we turn from our sin to the Lord. We acknowledge that we've been on the wrong road and we begin to merge onto God's road for our lives. So that when the sinner confesses and forsakes his or her sin, God promises to forgive and cleanse us from all sin. 1 John 1, 9 says this, If we are faithful to, for, to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all sin. Confession, repentance, must be a part of our calling upon Jesus or there will be no salvation. There's no universalism in this deal. Jesus, yes, came to save the world, but, and yes, his, his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to save everyone in the world of all time, but it will not be applied to every single person. It will only be applied to those who turn from sin and self and turn to Jesus through faith. Does that make sense? We've got to appropriate that into our lives, and the way you do that is to turn from sin, to repent of your sinfulness, and to turn to God. And so we receive the king in repentance. Secondly, we receive the king in faith. John 12, 44, Jesus said there, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Jesus is calling us to believe in him and his work on the cross. Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8. So we are to put all of our trust in Jesus and the sacrifice he made upon the cross. We lavish our faith upon him. We're no longer trusting in self. It's no longer have I checked off all of my religious duties. Have I done everything that we're supposed to do? Am I keeping this list of do's and don'ts? And if I waver in one little bit, I've lost everything. No, it's all about faith. I trust Jesus more than I trust myself. I believe in Jesus more than I believe in myself. We see here in these passages, in these Gospels, that the Lord made a grand entrance there in Jerusalem. 
just a few days ahead of his trial, a few days ahead of his crucifixion, a few days before his resurrection. And the purpose of his passion, and the passion is his suffering, and that's what we're celebrating and commemorating and and remembering this week. The purpose of that passion was to secure our salvation. The purpose of his salvation was not just to to be a nice, cute, uh, uh, wonderful act on our behalf. No, it was to secure something for us. He was purchasing something for us, and that is our salvation, our redemption. See, Jesus went to the cross so that you and I could make our own grand entrance into heaven one day. We're going to make a grand entrance into heaven one day. And it's going to be glorious. Not because you get to walk in with your walk-in music. Think about that. Uh, sometimes I, I've joked in our small group that, um, that it would be neat, uh, you know, as a pastor, because I could come up here and I'd have my own walk-out music and, and it, you know, it's a celebrity type thing. And that would totally take away from the Lord. We'd never do that. But I just, it's fun to joke about it. I think sometimes we think it's going to be like that way when we get to heaven. We're going to kind of walk in strutting, man, look at me, I'm here, brother, I'm here, it's great, glorious. No, we're going to come in and the heavens are going to open up in glory and praise and honor, but it's not going to be directed at you and I. It's going to be directed at the Lamb of God who stands there to welcome us. And it's going to be glorious. And Jesus wants you to be there. Jesus loves you enough to pay the price so that you could be there. He loves you enough to do that. He's our Lord. He's our King. He's our Savior. So who are you this morning? There's three types of people in this crowd. Genuine followers, casual observers, and religion followers. Which one are you this morning? Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for this wonderful gospel. This gospel that tells us all that you've done on our behalf. And Lord Jesus, on this Palm Sunday, as we are now entering the week of passion, as we will, our, our eyes are focused on this coming Sunday and, and Friday and, and all the things that, that we will celebrate and commemorate and rejoice in. God, our eyes are looking there. But Father, we thank you for this triumphal entry that we have looked at this morning in these passages. God, we thank you that you entered that city as a king because you are a king. You entered that city as Lord and Master because you are Lord and Master. You entered that city as the Savior because you were the one who was going to lay down your life as a perfect sacrifice, holy and perfect Lamb of God. Your blood would be spilt. The Bible tells us that it would be spilt for the remission, the removal of sin upon our lives. God, I pray this morning that as we contemplate the magnitude of what you've done for us, that you'd help us answer that question. What type of person am I? Am I a genuine follower of Jesus Christ? Am I a disciple? Has there been a time in my life when I know and knowingly and willingly have of my sin and place my faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation? Or am I a casual observer? I like the things of God. I, I like the idea of Jesus. I like the idea of church. I enjoy singing songs. I enjoy listening to preaching. It's interesting, Lord, that in the Bible, 
King Herod enjoyed listening to the preaching of John the Baptist. King Agrippa enjoyed listening and talking with the Apostle Paul. Neither one of those guys, from what Scripture shows us, are in heaven today. Father, may we not be those who casually observe the things of God, but may we be those who are genuinely following and participating in the things of God. Lord, am I this morning a a religion follower? That I'm trying my hardest. I'm doing my best. I'm holding on to some past prayer. I'm holding on to a baptism. I'm holding on to all that. All the while knowing that in my heart, nothing has changed. And yet the scripture screams to us that I'm a new creature in Christ if I'm in relationship with him. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. I am transformed in the life of Jesus Christ. But Lord, as a religious person, holding on to religion, that is never taking place. So God, across this room, there's three types of people. Pray, Holy Spirit, you speak very clearly and give us ears to hear this morning which one we are. And God, if we're casual or if we're religious, I pray that we'd come on our faces before you this morning, yielding our hearts, yielding our lives in repentance and in faith, trusting you as Lord and Savior. Speak to us, Lord. Move in our hearts. God, I pray for genuine disciples this morning. God, may this passage... Lord, drive us to a deeper appreciation of your love for us. God, what, uh, what you want to do in our lives. May we fall in love with you in a fresh and new way today. Bless us this morning. Speak to our hearts. Give us ears that will hear and a heart that will respond. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you stand to your feet?